Good evening, everyone. I'm Sarah Loudon from Total Health Conferencing, and welcome to another podcast edition of Inspired. Tonight, we have a spotlight on medical leadership, and I'm joined by three incredible leaders that we'll get to learn more about tonight as we dive deeper. Uh, I will ask each one of them to introduce themselves, but I would also ask that all of us just go on a first name basis tonight, since it's really gonna be an open conversation and we are really trying to beam into people's living rooms, their cars, et cetera, as friends, uh, which we've come to do on this podcast. So we're joined by Dr. Celine Kernas, who uh, will give you more information about her and her incredible journey in medical leadership. Dr. Bill Ade, uh, he too will tell us about leadership uh, in a breast diagnostic company. And Dr. Andrew Koop, who will share with us his journey uh, in becoming a medical leader at a large global um, pharmaceutical company. So welcome to each one of you tonight. Thank you for being with us. Thank you. Uh, I'm going to ask each one of you just to do a brief introduction on who you are and what your organization is about, and then a little bit about your role in the organization itself. We are going to follow uh, gentlemen's rules and ask ladies first. Celine, if you would introduce yourself. Uh, sure, sure. This is Sidney Cornaz. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Massive Bio. Thank you very much for having me, Sarah, and the Inspired uh, uh, Total Health Conferencing team. I'm very much glad to be here. So in terms of uh, my background, I come from a very, very heavy engineering background. I finished about five engineering degrees. And after that, for about 10 years, I was in strategy operations and transactions. And seven years of that, I was working for private equity funds in their investment decisions in healthcare. So basically how they can identify the assets in healthcare, how they can turn them around and how they can exit from those assets. But then, and I was so much uh, into my journey, you know, I was in process of uh, opening up my own growth equity fund and invest in sometimes broken healthcare companies and turn them around. So that was the uh, plan that I have laid out for my future. However, about five years ago, there was a family situation in cancer that completely changed my trajectory in my career and in my life. So what happened was that uh, my uncle has been diagnosed with cancer, and that was the first time that I have really recognized this a disparity between the uh, uh, the type of the care that you get in a large academic medical cancer center as well as what you're going to be able to get in a community practice or in, in other words in a non-NCI designated cancer center. So although we were not the not necessarily the non-educated or you know uh, we weren't necessarily the most uh, less um, I would say affordable care kind of a thing it was very difficult for us in order to be able to identify where to get the best care, what kind of a care to get, what would be the right timing for a clinical trial. Those were all the, I would say, the questions that were floating around our minds. And with that, uh, I decided to uh, found Massive Bio, not only to, of course, support my family in this journey, but also for all the other people, because I think this is an interdisciplinary field where you need to connect the technology services as well as the oncologist subspecialist expertise, where I have married myself 
with the right level of physicians. And then that has also been, uh, I would say, impacted by their families. And we started uh, this journey. The Massive Bio as a company by itself, it's a company that currently works on connecting the cancer patients as well as their physicians at the community practices to the biopharmaceutical clinical trials. We are a company that is only dedicated in oncology. It can be an oncology, hematology, pediatric or adult, but our primary objective is to be able to identify those patients that can potentially be eligible for clinical trials and provide them the access, regardless of their location and financial stability to the right clinical trials, either at their oncologist or that can be in a referral distance so that they don't get marginalized uh, because of their financial stability or where they are treated in their journey. Mm -hmm. Celine, I really want to go so much deeper with you uh, as this interview progresses, especially because during COVID, there's been such shifts in clinical trials. And I want to get your opinion on how quick we have responded and then how those responses will impact the future of trial design and access to trials. So I'm kind of super excited to be talking sure. with you uh, more about that. Sure. Um, Bill, if you would introduce yourself, tell us a little bit about your background and then where you are currently. Sure. And again, thank you, Sarah, for including me in this august group uh, this evening. Uh, so uh, my name is Bill Audi, and as you heard earlier, I'm the Chief Medical Officer for Agendia, uh, which is a, a company that provides um, genomic profiling of early stage breast cancer um, uh, at the RNA level, gene expression profiling, um, which derived from some really groundbreaking research almost 20 years ago um, uh, into the genomic um, anatomy of breast cancer beyond what pathology and clinical factors were routinely telling us. Now, I joined Agendia four years ago, um, but before that time, I spent nearly 30 years as a medical oncologist specialized in breast cancer. Um, I began my medical career with a, a graduate degree in genetics. And so my focus during my entire clinical career was the application of genetic and genomic information to inform not only what we knew about cancer, but how to treat it and how to predict its behavior. So uh, I practiced at the Cedars-Sinai Cancer Center in Los Angeles and had an academic appointment at UCLA, performed a lot of clinical research for which I, I wish we had uh, massive bio at the time uh, to help us uh, connect our patients to clinical trials. Um, but throughout my, my clinical time, uh, when I cared for women with breast cancer, many times I really felt that the clinical information with which I was making decisions was, was inadequate. And there was a lot that simply wasn't known, but yet I was having to make life and death decisions really, um, along with the women I was caring for. So as, as the technology progressed to the point where genomic information could be used in day-to-day decision-making, I, uh, I found the opportunity um, had arrived for me to work with um, the, one of the premier 
uh, genomic companies in the breast cancer space, um, Agendia. Um, and and in, in my current role, uh, I, I, I see my main, my main purpose and my main goal to be to transmit the information that one can achieve from uh, looking at, at the genomics of breast cancer to my clinical colleagues. I think uh, all clinicians who deal with breast cancer, I think understand that this information is available, but it's complicated. The data are, uh, are always changing. It's a rapidly changing field. So I see my goal as bringing this, the, the utility of genomic information to the clinic, to um, women with breast cancer and their physicians to make the best uh, decisions they can um, when they're having to face uh, a disease like breast cancer. Fortunately, in this country, the majority of women who are diagnosed with breast cancer are diagnosed at a curable stage. So, so our challenge is to cure those women um, with the right treatment and leave them at the end as intact as possible. So that means not over-treating uh, as well as uh, giving the appropriate therapy. It's so uh, interesting how there's like common threads throughout your training and then your practice that brought you to medical leadership uh, in industry because it's almost like the marriage of what drove you with genetics and genomics and then seeing that and the disconnects of why are we treating these specific women this way and then this natural progression to being in the decision-making seat from a medical perspective of how do you take a test like this and bring it out into the community so, so more women can kind of have that right size treatment. So um, I love, Bill, that, that you know, you kind of followed your passions all along the way. And we'll get back to you know, what drove you to making some of these decisions as we go forward. Um, Andrew, how about you? Can you give us an introduction and where you sit right now? Yep. Hi, Sarah. And again, thanks for the invite this evening. Um, so I lead the North American Medical Affairs Function for Oncology at Pfizer. And when you think about North America, obviously, it's very diverse. We've got obviously the healthcare system in the United States and also the healthcare system in Canada, which is what we call an HTA or health technology assessment um, environment. So two very different um, uh, approaches to delivery of healthcare, but again, high unmet medical need. Um, so my, my background, I've been, you can tell from the accent, I've not always been in this country. I actually moved to the States 22 years ago, um, but I grew up in Scotland and I trained in molecular biology. Um, there was a strong passion in the family for science. My dad um, was a parasitologist, so we're always interested in, in research. Um, and then obviously from there, I moved into medicine, completed my medical training and practice in the UK, but always had this interest about how do you actually connect with science? How do you make it relevant? Or how, how do you take data and turn it into evidence? And how do you actually um, turn that into something impactful that's got a larger reach potentially? And so I've spent really, I spent some time um, doing a postdoc fellowship. And then the bulk of my time has been in a variety of roles in different organizations, um, moving within large organizations, both here in the States and in Europe. Um, but really a time spent in medical affairs and R&D. And again, that the ability to shift between the two and it, how do you sort of translate some of the data and the findings and make sure that the data sets and things that are being produced are relevant and actionable. So really that's been my journey for the, for the last 20 or so years in, in the industry. 
Mm, wonderful. Well, we'll get back to, you know, I, I mentioned to you every time we talk that I'm so intrigued at how Pfizer um, manages all of these various functions in terms of their impact in different areas in healthcare. And it must be, you know, your North American leadership in as a CMO is like one piece of a bigger pie. And so I want to maybe get into what being part of that bigger pie feels like. Uh, Celine, so, you know, your story starts with, or at least your, the, the story that where you intersect with oncology um, starts with such this magnificent piece of your background. So you come from the super analytical, big scale, you know, metricized type of thinking, and then something personal collides with it. And you suddenly find yourself saying, well, do, does the way I think and process apply to this personal experience? And if not, why not? And that's really, to me, how I've always considered the birth of Massive Bio. It's like, there must be a better way, like in that engineering mind. Not, we're not gonna do it because we've always done it this way. There must be a better way. So maybe let's talk about clinical trials and bring it down for us. If I'm a patient, bring it down for us. If I'm a patient, how do I encounter Massive Bio and how does that change the way I encounter a clinical trial? Sure, sure, sure. So if you are a cancer patient that's treated at the community practice, you go to your treating oncologist and you know, 50% of the time your treating oncologist may discuss the clinical trial too. 50% of the time they may not discuss the clinical trial for you for a lot of different reasons. And then uh, when you are in that treating oncologist or the provider uh, that you are currently treated in, you know, that in the community, uh, I would say setting, yes, there are giant community, uh, I would say networks, but at the end of the day, it's still limited. You know, the amount of clinical trials that your provider has and the amount of clinical research team in order to be able to prescreen those patients clinical trials to limited. So you are basically restricted with where you are currently located and your current treating oncologist. In addition to that, if you wanted to go to another, uh, I would say facility in order to be able to attend to a clinical trial, there is no like a concierge level of support. You are almost like by your own, you have to deal with all the, I would say the operational, infrastructural and the financial issues in order to be able to get there. So as a cancer patient, you're already dealing with the challenges of the disease. You're already dealing with the challenges of how you're going to be able to accommodate your personal life. And in addition to that, if you wanted to get an advantage from the breakthroughs from the pharmaceutical company, there is another layer of, uh, I would say, the financial, operational, and infrastructural challenges that you need to go through it. And that's not for everyone. You know, even my family, you know, we had one cancer patient and almost like the entire family was trying to orchestrate that journey. We weren't even successful in a way that we wanted to be. So you need to have a military of people that is trying to work with you if you are not necessarily going to a large academic medical care center. And even if you go into a large academic medical care center, you still have to go through a lot of different processes that you may or you may not be familiar with. So 
there is a lot of stars that needs to be aligned. If you are a cancer patient, that's really that the community practice in order to enroll into a clinical trial because of that reason. Right now, the clinical trial enrollment rate is 3%, but for some trials, it's even less than 1%. You know, sometimes that 3% is even a positive number or maybe a higher number than it should. So when we basically take that issue, there are three areas that we have focused on in our business. One of them is the patient acquisition. The patient acquisition would be, you know, the patient are either coming to us through our patient contact center, you know, there is a specific phone number, they call us, and then when they come to the patient contact center, they are uh, welcomed by the patient advocates that educates them about the clinical trials. And then after that education, they provide a HIPAA release form so that we go to their treating oncologists and collect their medical records as well as their next generation sequencing. You know, it, the, typically the next generation sequencing is done by a third party. And then we go to that third party and collect their medical records. And then we use our natural language processing and machine learning technologies in order to pre-screen those patients to the more than 4,468 clinical trials that's actively recruiting in oncology at the clinical trials.gov. For some of those trials, we have the clinical trial protocols. For some of them, we don't have the clinical trial protocols. We are only using whatever is currently available at the clinical trials.gov for those trials. And then you are receiving a report that prioritizes the clinical trials based on your location and for your personal preferences in terms of where do you need to go and why. And then after that, uh, I would say interpreter report has been developed for you, we work with you and with your treating oncologist to be able to determine what would be the next route for you. And if you wanted to go into another, uh, I would say uh, site where the clinical trial has been conducted before because your treating oncologist may not necessarily have that trial, we help with you to make that transition. And if there's any kind of a financial consideration, we help with you in order to be able to resolve that issue with the sponsor so that you can get an advantage from the trial. And also, we also work with your treating oncologist. You know, if you are a patient and if there are five or six different of the patients of your type that that treating physician sees there, then we look for options for just-in-time site activation so that your uh, treating oncologist facility becomes a research site for that trial. Of course, in order to be able to satisfy that, there has to be other uh, stars that needs to be aligned, that treating oncologists need to be seeing that kind of patient population and they need to be delivered in order to be a research site. But if that's being ensured, then there's an opportunity for your site to be a just-in-time site so that you get the opportunity to participate into a clinical trial in your own setting. So in other words, there are three major areas that we focus on. One of them is on the patient identification awareness in terms of how the patients find us and activate themselves to be a, a candidate for a clinical trial participation. The other one is bringing the technology with the artificial intelligence and some other aspects of the technology so that the pre-screening can be done outside the site at scale. Because when the patients go to a site, 65% of the time, that patient already fails from pre-screening. So the, the whole idea is that you need to do that pre-screening to the extent possible before the patient is going to a site so that we know it's even worth going to that site.
-hmm. And then after that, doing that uh, uh, a technology-based pre-screening, then the, the last mile starts, which is a huge amount of issue. And that's where we focus on which site that the patient is going to go to. You know, is there a site that the patient can accommodate or is the treating oncologist needs to be a just-in-time site? What are the financial challenges that we need to resolve? So if you marry all these awareness and education with the technology, as well as the last mile operational issues, and if you combine those things, both in the context of the patient, as well as in the context of the treating oncologist, because the type of trials you know, that we're looking at are becoming fairly biomarker centric. Those are not necessarily like ocean level of patients that each physician has 20 different trials for those patients. We're just trying to make sure that the right demand meets the right supply. Mm -hmm. It sounds like what you're doing is taking all of the unknowns away, taking the pressure at probably one of the most vulnerable times in a person's life, being diagnosed or you know, having a recurrence, and you're holding their hand through the process, both on behalf of the patient and the physician, in such a complex world. I mean, I could probably have a, a podcast with just you, which actually is making my, my brain go, with just you and clinical trials, navigating clinical trials, because it is so true that, you know, when you think about adult oncology clinical trials, that we are enrolling three out of 100 patients. When you think of the implications of that, slower time to drug development, slower time to drugs to market, uh, you know, so much less people being impacted by advanced um, treatments. And so you compare that to pediatric cl uh, clinical trials where the whole team is focused on that child, you know, treating that child. Uh, you see sometimes those numbers are in the 80s. It's like, what's the disconnect? But I'm so proud that you're matching those disconnects with uh, services. Celine, so much more to talk with you about, but I'm gonna move uh, on to Bill. Bill, this year at ASCO, uh, which is our national cancer meeting, you know, normally in the non-COVID world, we have about 50,000 people all getting together in Chicago, uh, Starbucks lines that are impossible to get to the front of. Um, but this year was a little different. Uh, everything was virtual, but nonetheless, there were incredible amounts of data produced from that meeting that really became or will become practice changing as people start to incorporate uh, what we've learned. One of those trials was the long-term follow-up of the study that your product is based on. Um, I want to ask you from a medical leadership perspective, how a year like this is different than other years? How do you lead your team through the implementation of what we are discovering based on studies like um, Mind Act? Yeah. Well, you know, the, the, the trial that you're referring to, the Mind Act trial, um, is adding to our um, volume of knowledge about the utility of our genomic assay, the, the mammoprint assay in early breast cancer. Um, and it, it actually kind of answered some additional questions that um, many clinicians had, had observed in, in practice for many years, but 
hadn't really been the subject of a large trial that was prospective and randomized. So the challenge to answer your question, Sarah, is, is how to place the new observations, the new understanding into the standard of care as it moves ahead with the ultimate goal that we all have, which is to improve the outcomes for women with breast cancer, not only to make sure that we're curing everyone we can cure, but also to, again, avoid over and under treatment. One of the revelations from this trial um, is, was for women um, 50 years and under, uh, for younger women with breast cancer, although breast cancer is more uh, of a problem for, for older women, um, many uh, women 50 and under uh, also unfortunately are being diagnosed um, and most of them are curable and they have many, many years ahead of themselves. So uh, understanding who needs aggressive treatment, who needs chemotherapy and who does not uh, is critical for their quality of life for what may be another 30 or 40, 50 more years. So what we've, what we've been focusing on is how to get the results out in a digestible and uh, I would say clear form, how to navigate what is likely to be uh, a variety of different opinions about what these data mean and how to uh, generate a consensus so that for the practicing clinician, this isn't just uh, an academic exercise, this is a practical step forward in the care of women with breast cancer. Um, so that's, that's the struggle. I, I think I'm sure Andrew has the same issues with data that, that is generated by, by his company with, his, uh, with the, the medications that they generate. It's, Let's take this large, long research endeavor and turn it into something practical that a clinician uh, and their patients are going to benefit from tomorrow. So packaging it in a way that uh, um, is, uh, the people will be receptive to, that will give a clear enough answer, but also, as with anything in science and medicine, point out where there's still more to be learned, where, yeah. where the next step has, has to be. I think that, that's how we're dealing with this, uh, uh, this new data that, that, that we were fortunate to present at ASCO this year. Yeah, thank you for that. And Andrew, you know, Bill's talking about this development process and while Agendia has a diagnostic assay that answers multiple questions, Pfizer is a global organization with many, many divisions, many, many, treatments, many, many data uh, sets in development. Can you speak to how, you know, just generally how we go from concept straight through all the way to a drug being available? And maybe you can even talk about, because I know Pfizer is very involved in vaccine development for COVID-19, just the whole structure of, you know, kind of a stepwise approach to how this uh, manifests. So yeah, so Sarah, and again, I think from what Bill said, again, it's about how do you bring 
bring transformation and innovation forwards again because you're looking to constantly improve the lives of patients living with cancer. So again, I think I've shared my role at the moment is obviously in a medical affairs role and I'll speak a bit about that shortly towards the later stage and again thinking about how do you continue to generate those data sets that are impactful that people can understand, how do you engage with um, for example, payers around the globe. But where, where you start from is really, again, you follow the science. What does the science tell you? Where's the unmet medical need? You really, obviously, as I think you all, we all know, we need to go through those trials methodically to make sure that we can identify the dose, the safe dose and test. But what I think is truly transformative and is happening more and more, and I think um, you're starting to see this, is how do we do this in the modern age. Again, and I think Celine um, touched on it briefly, but I think we're also recognizing now with the explosion of big data sets, artificial intelligence, there's multiple ways now that we're actually capturing data along the way so that we can actually understand from interrogating different data sets, real world data sets, understanding quickly, real time, maybe some questions that we have or other data sets that we want to get. So I think behind all of this, you'll find in any organization, any large organization, there's a sense of urgency. And again, I think, you know, Bill might touch on it too, but whether you're in a small organization or a large organization, it comes down to having that systems in place and that common vision about what do you, what's your purpose? What do you want to do? You come to work every day with this desire to make a difference and do something. And again, it's how do you work and bring innovation innovation in trial design, innovation. There's a lot of innovation at the moment going on in the regulatory science arena, as you think about those areas as well. And there's a lot of innovation um, coming from patient advocates. And again, the needs, and it, it really, Sarah, takes a conversation. It's not something that a large or a small company can do by itself. It really takes a lot of listening, a lot of um, listening about what to do, what the problems are, and then collectively trying to solve and again, I think if you're relentlessly following the science and the unmet medical need, it certainly gives you that, um, that sort of northern star, that north star direction of where, where you're going. I love how you say that, relentlessly follow the science, because, you know, right now, all of us are going through all of these challenges, uh, just unprecedented. No one could, I love, I saw this meme that said, you know, for anybody who made a five-year plan five years ago, you were wrong. Like nobody, nobody on the globe could have predicted this was gonna be our five-year plan. Um, and when you say relentlessly pursue and be transformative, that's what it's taken for all of us to respond to the challenges that we've been faced with and still deliver, whether it's life-saving or life-changing therapies, life-changing diagnostics, coming alongside and holding, you know, the the woman's hand when she's making these vital decisions like, am I gonna have chemotherapy or not? And Celine, you know, being in a situation where you're diagnosed with cancer and you go to your local community oncologist who says, you know, there's a trial, but the trial's at, you know, in Texas or in New York and we live in Birmingham, Alabama. And with COVID, it's very difficult to think about getting on a plane in intervals of time so Celine, you know, you, I, I've known you for a very long time and I know you to be a woman who meets challenges head on. You're not afraid of working hard. You're not afraid of thinking outside of the box. 
this I'm sure caused you even with that incredible engineering brain to sit back and go, whoa, how are we going to continue to reach people to give them the information about how to navigate this clinical trial process? So can you talk to me a little bit about that transformative, innovative um, process that you had to go through with Massive Bio uh, and where you kind of have landed in this moment, knowing that you may have to evolve again. Yeah, yeah. So I think uh, COVID brought the, the oncology clinical trial was already very challenging. So by itself as a baseline. But then I think COVID brought three more challenges to this game. One of them is the mobility. You know, uh, right now it's very challenging in order to be able to move one patient from one location to another, even they are willing to go to another referral facility to participate into a clinical trial. So that's one. The second issue that has a very uh, 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 challenging is the safety concern because, you know, if you are uh, uh, in a clinical trial setting, how are you going to be able to provide the most, uh, I would say, efficient and efficacy? you know, that process of clinical trial and making sure that you can partition that trial process from a COVID uh, infected patient and, and what it means for uh, the, the team is also very challenging. And then the third aspect of the challenge is, which is similar to also similar as a safety concern, is the human resources challenge. Because right now, you know, in the context of COVID, you also need to make sure that your healthcare professionals are also not getting infected in order to be able to support the care of the actual patients. Uh, of the cancer patients, because I was actually uh, reading one of the, uh, I would say the Wall Street Journal articles, it was just saying that there's not enough healthcare staff that's available in order to be able to support the, the, the patients that's coming um, uh, through the door of the healthcare system. So those are the three different things that has basically stressed uh, or further stressed the oncology clinical trial enrollment. But our position or our I would say the innovation approach to oncology clinical trial has not changed because of COVID. You know, the thing that we are doing is very clear. We are empowering the cancer patient. We are activating the cancer patient and we are making them aware. Again, it's a different story if they can get an advantage from that trial at that instant in time because there is a mobility issue, but at least they're aware of their options. You know, they don't need to be affiliated with a patient advocacy group. They themselves as an individual, as an entity aware of that issue. The second thing is that you have the ability to be able to take everything that should not happen at the side, outside, you know, outside the side, you know, do you need to do the, the full face screening at site? No. Do you have to do X, Y, Z at site? No. So make it more and more, I would say sightless with a lack of better word and literally leverage the technology and the data and the, the use of different, I, I see artificial intelligence as a tool, use of, of these, I would say scientific tools in order to be able to make this thing as also time effective and scalable as possible. And then the third aspect, which is still a challenge is in terms of which site that this patient has to go to. And if there is any way to take that 
site-related role to outside so that we don't have to, I would say, restrict the, pa the, uh, the patient's care with the, the, the visit for the site. You know, unfortunately, based on, again, there's much more experts in here. I don't think that in, it, there is a binary way to do that in oncology, like some other disease types that you can take everything to home and everything else. You know, you can maybe take certain relate about the infusion and all the others to a home-based setting, but I don't think that the clinical trials is going to be 100% sightless in the oncology setting. I more envision a hybrid scenario. There, there are certain aspects that still needs to reside at the site, although at a reduced scale, but taking the at least the front end of identification, pre-screening, doing the right allocation to the right trial at the right time to the extent possible without the mercy of the site so that we only go to a site when it is needed and where it is needed. That's amazing. I mean, it really is revolutionizing the way a patient encounters a clinical trial. And I think what it does is it starts to remove barriers uh, where people start saying, you know, it's too much. It's too much time. It's too much travel. It's too much money. It's too much Oh, oh, being away from my home, you know, I'm going to feel sick, all those things. You're removing those barriers because you're doing the heavy lifting at the times where the patient needs, needs it most. It's amazing. It really is amazing what, you, um, what you've invented, Selena. I, I think uh, you should be very proud of the way this one catalyzing event uh, in your life has impacted so many people. I think that that's so incredible. Okay, let's shift a little bit and get a little bit personal. Um, Bill, <laughs> when we think about, you know, you said you were a breast medical oncologist for the better part of 30 years and, um, you know, every day putting on your coat, going into the office, doing your H&Ps, making your prescriptions, doing your treatments. And then all of a sudden you're putting on a suit and tie and doing presentations and looking at the business side of uh, this diagnostic. What's been the most rewarding part of this different than being uh, a practicing oncologist? Well, I guess I'll, I'll start in the reverse, which is to say that um, there's nothing more rewarding than, than caring for patients. And that, that was always, my drive and and i do miss seeing patients um i think anyone who went into medicine you know will have that experience but you realize that you can only help the person in front of you one at a time and and what i have found has been most rewarding about the job i'm in now is that i've taken my 30 years of clinical experience in breast cancer and genetics, and I'm applying it in a way that I feel is going to touch many, many more women than I could ever have done in my office in, in practice. Mm. Um, so I've given up that one-on-one -on -one relationship that I had with all my patients to help the broader population because that, that to me um, is, is putting what I've learned to best use. And that's really what's been mo most rewarding about this is realizing that the, 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 the decision-making, the, the decisions that women are going to make are going to be affected by, by what, what I'm doing in, in, uh, with Agendia and with this genomic information. And, 
it's going to touch a lot more people than I could have done by myself. That's amazing. That really is. I love that transition from the person in front of you to this broad group of women. And I, I love that. I love that building blocks on your legacy. Um, I think that that's really, really wonderful. Andrew, you mentioned your dad was a parasitologist. And I have a question here. I, I, I hope that your answer goes along the same lines as what I'm about to say, but my father was a cardiovascular uh, doctor and I lost him very young. I was 21 when I lost him to a massive heart attack he was in. We were in England together and I had to call my family and say, you know, what had happened. It was a hard time, but even the 21 years that I spent with him, he marked my life in so many ways. He was a professor, he was a doctor, he was a, he always was giving of himself and he always was inspiring. I have two little brothers and a little sister. He was always inspiring us to think differently, to kind of look at the world differently. He was from England, my mom is from Trinidad. And so they both were, you know, we're first generation American citizens here. So they both looked at this country so differently and they always would remind us of what they came from. And when you said like you have a family of scientists and that's kind of what first propelled you, I have a question here, who inspires you? So if you would answer, I would love to hear your answer. So it's gonna be a simple answer probably. It's actually my dad and he still inspires me. Um, and the reason is it, it comes from an early age. I mean, this idea, and I say this to my team all the time, is you have to be hungry for knowledge. Mm -hmm. Once you start getting bored, you know, one of the things that I love about this job is, and I think Bill touched on it, about the ability to be able to connect people within a large organization and thinking about the problems that you're trying to solve every day about access to healthcare, people understanding different data sets, barriers, and how do you join those dots? But it takes a lot of listening and it takes a lot of knowing people and knowing where the problems are. And if you go, if I go back and think about what my dad was doing as a parasitologist, it was, everything was always a learning. Uh, I'll share this. And again, um, in the spirit of transparency, but you know, growing up in the UK, liver was a very popular dish. It was always, everything was always in an anatomy museum. You know, everything was always a lesson. Um, you know, sometimes it's, I think for the family and my mom, it was a little off-putting before dinner, being prepared and dissecting it. But the ability to actually question and again to, to ask, well, how do you think? And, and that's what I enjoy most at the moment because I don't need to solve everything. My, my job is really to inspire people around me to be inquisitive, to ask the questions, to go out into the community and then use their network and the resources either within a company like Pfizer or through collaborations to find an answer. But it comes down from that constantly being inquisitive. And again, um, that, that was learned and I got taught by my, my, my dad and he still, every day to this day, still challenges me. I love that. I love that. And I know you have two boys. So two boys and one girl. Two boys <laughs> and one girl. So I know that that's probably something because I feel like I very much take the principles that my dad had in our home and pass them down. I'm sure so many times I'll say, my dad used to say, or my dad. And so I've got a 17 and a six-year-old and we, we call him Grandpa Joe, although neither of my boys ever met him. So my little one will say, would Grandpa Joe say this? Would so it's very much that we get that 
kind of beautiful, you know, soul passed down, uh, whether they're here or gone, that we carry through to our families. So I, I hope. But I think, but I think, but I was going to say, Sarah, I think we we carried on not only to our families but our colleagues, and I think that's part of our responsibility, which is. Um, you know, we said that, you know, you know, you want to be bold, you want to be transformative, but we can't do it all ourselves. So it's sparking that sort of enthusiasm for knowledge and the people around you. Yes, that's beautiful. Um, well, senior Dr. Coop, I am very proud of where your junior Dr. Coop is. And I thank you for instilling him with inspiring other people around because I'm sure he'll watch this. Uh, Celine, you and I are the minority in medicine at this point, although I think it was last year, might have been the year before, that the first incoming medical school class was made up of 51% of women. Um, but women in medicine, women in leadership, women in medical education are still the minority. I want you to talk to young women right now who are kind of stepping over that threshold of what their career path might look like uh, and give them some of your wisdom uh, and inspiration for what could be next. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a good question. So what I can tell to young women is that, you know, young women have been going through the schools and all that stuff. They think that that is the challenging part of being a woman. In fact, the challenging part of being a woman starts when you come to the business world, okay, or in, in your professional career. and, as, and it actually accelerates or it expands or, uh, or becomes much more difficult when you go up. You know, I was looking at my career. I started working in 2006. This is my 14th year in my, I would say, in my career. Uh, when I started, of course, uh, there were challenging times and all that stuff. But then when I look at now, maybe that challenge has multiplied by hundreds. And you are going to tell me, okay, if the challenge is going up, how you are still overcoming this thing. You know, what I can tell to this young woman, do not afraid that the, the acceleration of the challenges are going to go up, but you are becoming more and more resilient yes. over time in terms of how you're in a position to be able to cope with those challenges. And keep in mind that don't take the things personal. You know, there is always going to be that person that's not going to take your opinion seriously. There is always going to be people that think that you are not smart enough. There is always going to be something on your given day that is going to help you to discourage yourself from the goal that you wanted to get in. But that's the whole point of those people. They want you to give up your goal because you're basically so good enough to get there. So what I can tell is that I'm a big believer of perseverance and passion. It, this is regardless of if you're a woman or if you're not a woman, what kind of a gender, it really doesn't matter. Do not give up whatever the environment is planning for you because if you don't give up, if you show your passion, if you give everything about yourself to something, although that instance may not be converted into an instant success, I'm sure there is another instance in their life that is going to bring them the actual success story that they're looking at. But this requires patience, 
This requires perseverance. This requires passion. And again, don't take anything personal. I think a lot of the times as women, we take a lot of the things personal. Uh, so uh, taking it personal, I think take the good things personal, but not the negative uh, things that's going to uh, take your way more challenging. But uh, one thing that I can tell you is that on the inspiration thing, uh, I, I never uh, know Judith Faulkner, you know, I've never met with her or anything like that. She's the CEO of Epic, you know, for 40 years, she has founded her company and all that stuff. And I don't know, even know if I'm going to met with her in my life uh, in the future. But when I have a very, very challenging day, I actually think about her. I say, okay, she has been in this field for 40 years, good or bad. She has survived. She has basically make up her own company. She never gave up on it. She has moved through these lengths. You know, maybe you have another Judith Basin, and so just, just keep on going. So that's kind of the, the way how I keep on going. And I think, I'm sure those young women are going to keep going in their lives. Yeah, and I think that it's so important. I, again, like gender neutral, I think it's so important to surround yourself with people who build you up. Right. You know, they say iron sharpens iron. It's like, Sometimes you need to have that someone rubbing you the wrong way, but it's really to sharpen you. It's not, you know, to kind of bring you down. And I, I especially think in medical leadership, when you are in charge of, you know, teams, when you are in charge of vision, you want to be surrounded by people who are always sharpening you because you have a big weight on your shoulders, you know, a big responsibility uh, that you have to, to carry out and bill that brings me to the next kind of personal question which is as a leader you know what do you think your style is and maybe how has it been developing as you've kind of moved out of clinical practice and into medical leadership yeah um well this is something i've had to learn because as as a as a practicing physician your you're basically required to be in charge. Your decisions, you have to you have to believe in them, and you have to rely on a lot of other people. But you're ultimately in charge. And being part of a of an organization, Agendia isn't a huge company; it's 200 people. Um, but I uh, work with every department in this company, um, and so being part of a large team um, has been very enjoyable to me. And I think what, what I've tried to develop, at least in my, you know, uh, role in, in leadership, in, in the medical leadership, is really to, to recognize what everyone brings to the table, what their individual uh, skills and con contributions are. They're obviously doing what they do because they're, enjoy, they're enjoying, for the most part, what, what they're providing, and they value that. Um, so being a physician in a sea of non-physicians mm -hmm. is an interesting experience. Um, but I, I, I've, I've found that uh, um, facilitating everyone's contribution to the bigger picture is what, you know, what I can contribute to, to the team. Directly with, uh, in my team uh, are a group of, uh, uh, of incredibly well-educated, uh, uh, brilliant PhDs, uh, uh, scientists, uh, 
um, statisticians um, who know science inside and out. And together we have crafted a lot of the research that um, we are supporting and, and generating uh, because Agendia is uh, providing a, a genomic uh, test with clinical utility, but we're also generating new data. We're generating research all the time. Um, so facilitating everyone's contribution to the bigger picture, I think, is what I see my role as, as a leader to be. Yeah, and that kind of echoes, um, Andrew, what you were saying, like being a leader, being a listener, um, knowing that it's a team effort, knowing that, you know, it takes everybody's contribution to get to where you're going, or at least to kind of meet the vision of where you're going. But I'm sure you encounter challenges. Those could be external, like what we're facing with COVID or, you know, other things, regulatory challenges before uh, and, and after, um, or they could be internal, you know, culture shifts, um, resource changes. So how do you as a leader meet some of those challenges? You know, we heard Celine always says, what would Judith do? Uh, how do you meet some of these challenges when, you know, you have those heavy days? So I, I, I think in any, so again, you know, Pfizer is a large global organization, but part of the role of a leader is to listen, is to listen both to, to your teams, hear the pulse of the organization, but be a really good communicator meaning, you know, things can't happen in silos. I think one of the role of a leader is to help put things into context. So if you have disappointment in a clinical trial, then let's move on and talk about what's next because patients are, are waiting. If we've got to, if we're, if we're moving in different directions, why is that and putting it into context? What I found over the years is people, people want to trust when they know where they're going, where you're going, what that journey is, what the destination is. Um, and when, when people are left in the dark, it can be a very challenging time. And I think leadership isn't just about getting projects done, but it's about the how, the why, and helping make sure that everyone can understand the, their contributions to that. The other thing I'll, I'll say is I think, you know, and Celine touched on it, this idea about resilience. And again, I think it's just incredibly important in these times more than any for leaders to be resilient um, to how do you find that energy to pick yourself up, dust yourself down, get back and, 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 to, and to keep moving. Um, I think, you know, and people, people are resilient. We're seeing it now. I'm hearing these stories every day when you hear of patients, physicians working in these incredibly challenging times. And I think for any leader, that the ability to build and maintain and nurture resilience in your organization is going to be critical. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. No, it's, it's amazing to see how everyone, you know, kind of like the human spirit in each one of us have risen to the occasions, even when it's been very hard. Personally, I know as the leader of my own organization, there are times where I, I almost have to like turn everything off and push everything aside and just kind of like get away from it for a minute because I'm not just overwhelmed with the challenges in front of me, but I'm overwhelmed with not having the same um, avenues of release and avenue, you know, go to the mall, hang out with my sister, get a drink with a friend, like the things that we normally used to use to kind of get rid of 
some of the negative energy and bring in some positive uh, reinforcements are absent. So I can imagine when you're leading organizations like the three of you, um, where you have much larger teams and you have much more at stake, uh, the pressures sometimes can be overwhelming. But I'm, I'm glad that you, you know, brought up that resilience that we all have discovered about ourselves, because uh, I think that it's very true. Well, we're coming to the end. We've got about five minutes left. So, you know, if you've ever done a group podcast with me that I always like to end with silly things, uh, lively, fun things. Um, Celine, I'm going to start with you. If we, if you had to put this time to a song or soundtrack, this time in life to a song or soundtrack, or what is the music that you turn loud up when you're having unusual days? What is that? Give us an answer. Well, I think uh, salsa will always <laughs> will, will be my, my choice for now and forever. Uh, I was actually dancing um, heavily uh, prior to founding Massive Bio. After founding Massive Bio, I'm really not uh, getting the time. Sometimes I sit down and say, okay, well, what do I really miss doing in life after I founded the company? And I think dancing is definitely one of those in order to be able to relieve the stress uh, and still have the joy uh, of life. So I think uh, whatever that we do, um, I think this conversation would also go uh, a, a good way with a good salsa. Got it, got it. I'll have to remember that uh, the next time we see each other for sure. Um, Bill, you are a musician. I actually am the most interested in your answer because the library catalog of, of vinyl in your head right now what would be the soundtrack to this time? Oh, well, here's the soundtrack of my phone. Um, <laughs> well, I, I don't know that I would select a single song, but I can tell you what I've turned to um, in, in the immediate, uh, the last few months um, when, you're, when you're able to um, kind of choose your own music at home. Yep. Um, so I'm either listening to the Rolling Stones at top volume uh, or Brazilian bossa nova to wow. sort of kind of calm and mellow down because I, I find those two kinds of music kind of fit the, the poles of, of uh, where I'm feeling these days. I love that Brazilian bossa nova. Okay, all right. And Andrew, how about you? Bagpipes, no. No, no, <laughs> not bag, not bagpipes. No, I, I, I'd probably go back to bluegrass, or I go back to some of the early, or some of the early Dolly Parton. Why? Because I think there's a, there's a simplicity to it. You know, if you if you go back and you know listen to things like Little Sparrow, it goes back very simply about just stripping things back. And I, my sentiment at the moment is we've all had to strip back, um, and it's been incredibly challenging for a lot of people but also some of that stripping back has actually opened up um, different opportunities. So I'd probably go back there. I love that, absolutely. Well, I thank all of you for being with us tonight. Uh, I thought that this was fantastic. It definitely gave us an insight to who you each are and to the, the opportunities, the passions, the purpose, the challenges 
of medical leaders everywhere uh, who are kind of walking through COVID-19 and still leading their teams um, and innovating and, and being creative and being persistent and resilient. Uh, all of these things are things that I think all of us identify with at this time. And I thank you for sharing a little bit about yourself. I thank you that you spent this time with us, with the listeners, because all of us need healthy, happy, positive information, and really to connect with each other on such different levels. So I thank each one of you for your time with us tonight. Celine, I can't wait to dance with you when we next see each other. And Bill, to be listening, go rocking out with you and your guitar somewhere that we can actually see each other again. Um, and Andrew, bluegrass is my favorite style of music. So I love that that is something that connects us even further. So I thank you, all three of you, and I wish you health and happiness for all the journey ahead uh, until the next time we meet. Thank you for having us. Thank, thank you so much. much. Good night. Good night. Good night.